0: Well, good morning, everybody, and w- welcome back to our series, Broken, and welcome to the Compass Church for all of those of you who are visitors, uh, maybe you're a little nervous, relax. Church used to make me nervous. Increasingly, it is my favorite place to be with people who are seeking the face of God together. That's really what we're here for. And we're about to study his Bible, which is an amazing way that he speaks to us. And I pray you sense that, even in your soul. I wanted to start by sharing a a story with you of something that happened in my life 25 years ago. So a long time ago, I was 22 years old. A young man, probably one of the most humiliating moments of my life. Now I got your attention, don't I? I was a high school youth pastor back then, and I I got this great idea for an activity for our high school students, I I brought them all to Woodfield Mall at Christmas time. And I said to them, hey guys, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. First of all, Christmas shop. You know, we're at the mall. You got uh, presents to buy for friends and family. Do that. But while you're shopping, we're going to have a little contest. Whoever can find the most adult volunteers in this youth group wins. When you find an adult volunteer, get them to sign your sheet. And there are about 10 of them that are around Woodfield Mall. Whoever gets the most signatures wins. And I said, one other thing, some of them are going to be in disguise. So finding them is not going to be easy. Sounds like a good game, doesn't it? One of my uh, friends who was also a volunteer in the youth ministry, same age as myself, he came up to me. He goes, Jeff, I got a great idea. You and I, let's work together in disguise." He said, you'll be an old man and I'll be your wife. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. I, I got a gray wig and a gray mustache that I stuck to my face. I put a pillow under my shirt to give me an old man's pot belly, kind of like I've got naturally now. And uh, he borrowed a dress from his mom and wore a big curly gray wig and he decided that it would be fun if he sat in a wheelchair and I pushed him around Woodfield Mall, you know, and that's, that's what we did. A few of the kids spotted us right away. Our disguise was not as uh, convincing or maybe we looked a little obvious. I'm not sure. Apparently we did look obvious because we were approached by a Schomburg police officer. And I'm like, hello, officer. (laughs) And he's looking us over. You know, my friend, I wish he would have shaved. You know, he had stubble on his face. And, you know, his dress was short and his hairy legs were sticking out. It was not a pretty sight. And the the officer suspected something was up. And he goes, I want to see some IDs from you too. And so I pulled out my driver's license and I gave it to him. And he looked at the ID. And I'm like, oh, oh, yuck. He ripped off the mustache. I go, I'm, I'm in disguise. Let me explain. I'm a high school youth pastor and we're having a little fun here at the mall, a little contest. He wasn't interested in hearing my explanation. He cut me off and he goes to my wife, I mean my friend. He said, uh, let me see your ID. <laughs> I'll never forget this moment. My buddy stood up out of the wheelchair, lifted up his dress and he got his wallet out. <laughs> and he gave the ID to the police officer. And to my horror, the police officer just shook his head and he goes, you both are under arrest. Can you believe that? Can I just pause and tell you that prior to my being hired here at the Compass Church, I shared this story with the elder board and they still went away ahead with the hire, okay? So it's all good. He said, you're, you're both under arrest. I go, no, we're not. I go, sir, listen, we're just, you know, youth pastors having fun here. And he's like, hands behind your back. You ever been handcuffed? It is not a pleasant experience. Folks, in the middle of Woodfield Mall, your dear friend was handcuffed, read his rights, and Arrested. I, uh, Woodfield is like a plus, you've probably been there, and you know that there are those four long arm hallways that kind of extend out of the middle, well the longest was the Lord and Taylor that's now Nordstrom's, that's the walk of shame for, for me, do you know how many people are at Woodfield at Christmas time, we are talking thousands upon thousands and an arrest right in the middle is a big deal, and so I I'm like, Lord, this is not happening, oh yeah it is. In handcuffs, me and my friend walked with thousands lining up to see this spectacle. On the upper deck, thousands lining to look down upon us. And, you know, I'm sure many recognize me as I go, yeah, yeah, this is unbelievable. Oh, the humiliation of it. We were put into the police car, driven to the Schomburg police station. All the kids in the youth group, you know, started some many of them saw it, and uh, they all got together, got in the church van, <laughs> drove to the police station, put together their dollar bills to bail their youth pastor out of jail. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? <laughs> and pathetic, you know? God, <laughs> oh, cool. what a story! Well, I share that story with you for a couple of reasons. For one. As we get into our text today, we're going to realize that the language the Apostle Paul uses is courtroom terminology. A, a, tr- a courtroom trial is the context for the description that he uses, and I, you're going to recognize that I've got quite a bit of experience in the courtroom, and you're going to wonder, how did pastor get so knowledgeable? Now you know. But the bigger reason that I want to share, share this story is to bring about this point. All hardship, almost all hardship, if not all, comes with the special gift of humiliation. All hardship involves an assault, a violent assault on our self-esteem. Getting arrested is hardship. That walk of shame with handcuffs and all these eyes looking at me, I felt as low as I had ever felt in life. And in this series, Broken, we're talking about trials. We're talking about hardship. And one of the most dangerous sides of hardship is not the hardship itself, but its effect on our sense of self-worth and self-identity. Think with me for a moment. If you have a health-related hardship, if your body is breaking down, you can feel weak, you can feel ugly, you can feel worthless. Think about financial hardship. If your finances are upside down or collapsing, maybe bankruptcy, you can feel, you know, in our society, your net worth determines your personal worth. And when your finances are upside down, you are absolutely humiliated, hoping no one discovers what a mess things are. If you have work-related hardship, maybe there was a project you were assigned and you just failed and Colossal fashion, that is absolutely attacking the very core of our sense of importance and significance. Maybe it's relational hardship, a marriage that's crumbling, or a relationship with kids that are faltering. The, 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 The messages we wrestle with in those moments are: I am undesirable, unlovable, unwanted. Maybe it's moral failure that you're dealing with. And in those moments, the messages are, I am disgusting. I am horrible. Where do these messages all come from? Well, let me just say, those messages can come from a number of sources. They can come from ourselves. I think we're great at self-condemnation. They can come from other people who, you know, bless us, with these just destroying words. Or they can come from the demonic. I'll just be honest. The Bible says that the, the part of the angels are living in rebellion against God and speaking words of accusation into us. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren or the accuser of Christians, bombarding us with horrific words, thoughts, concepts intended to destroy our self-esteem. And hardship is when we're vulnerable. And so the Lord speaks about that. Folks, as we turn to address this question, we're going to start in Romans 8.31. Some of you are like, wait a minute, last week was Romans 8.28. You just skipped over 29 and 30. And that's the predestination verses. That's a very interesting topic where there's a lot of debate and maybe some controversy. You're right, and you wondered how I was going to handle those verses. Well, you just found out. Skip over them. <laughs> that's not true, actually. I, uh, Though tempted to, this is an important matter that really could involve and should. It deserves a whole message. And so I've done that. Uh, this week, in this room, in an empty room, I preached another bonus sermon, if you will, on Romans eight twenty nine and 30 called Predestination. And so if you go on the, on the website and you look at the series, you'll find one on Predestination, and you can watch that message, a little bonus material on that topic. All right? Fair enough? Now will you allow me to skip over it? Okay, good. All right, so let's start reading in verse 31. Second half of 31 it says this If God is for us who can ever be against us Since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all won't he also give us everything else Who dare accuse who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own no one For God himself has given us right standing with himself who then condemns us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, and he was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. First of all, I just want to point out the accusation condemnation language in this verse. Did you see that? Who accuses us? Uh, who accuses uh, Uh, Who accuses us? Who's against us? Who condemns us? This verse is readily addressing these messages that are designed to destroy us. And it's using, as I mentioned again, legal terminology. When it talks about accusation, that's a legal term. When it talks about right standing, that's the concept of justification. That's a legal term. When it talks about condemnation, legal term. When it talks about Christ pleading for us, that's representation language, again, found in the court of law. And so, if you'll allow me, as we dive into this phrase by phrase, I want to use the context of a courtroom to bring it to life. So I have a diagram of a courtroom, which you've never seen because you're all law-abiding citizens, but I uh, can tell you just some about this. For example, this chair right here, that's where the pastor sits when uh, he's in court. And then I had to get a lawyer, and so the defense attorney sits right there. And the mean police officer sits right here. And he has the prosecuting attorney who sits right here. Okay? Well, it's in that context that we need to look at these verses And the first verse, again, in verse 31, is this simple statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that a beautiful verse? If God is for us, does it matter if anyone's against us? It just doesn't. And if we go to the courtroom setting and ask the question, where would God be represented in this scenario? He's the judge, right? This is where... God is. And when it comes to a courtroom drama, it doesn't matter if the people who are watching or the prosecuting attorneys against you. Their opinion just doesn't matter, does it? Whose opinion is the only one that counts? It's the judge. And the message of this verse is God is for you. Let's write that down. God is for you. When I went to court and I got a lawyer, my lawyer went up at the very beginning because the judge wanted to speak with him. And over hushed tones, they conversed over the nature and the matter of this arrest. And then when my lawyer came back to me, he leaned over and he whispered to me, he goes, this is gonna be so much fun. <laughs> and I said, why, why do you say that? I'm not having fun at all. And he said, The judge is totally on our side. And in that moment, it was like a million pounds fell off my shoulders. There's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. And he is for you. He's on your side. You, if you're a Christian, have been reconciled to the Almighty. He is your dad. He is your father. And it doesn't matter what that person at work thinks about you. And it doesn't matter what that family member who can't stand you thinks. And it doesn't matter even what you think about yourself in your worst moment. The only opinion that counts is God's. And God says, you're mine. I am for you. I am on your side. Wow. Incredible verse. So that's the first message that comes through in verse 31. Let's turn to the next verse, verse 32. It says this. Since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Do you see the logic that this passage is portraying? Paul is pointing to the cross of Christ. He's saying, listen, God did the ultimate expression of love, right? The cross of Jesus Christ. He gave up his own son. That's a reference to the cross. And if God's willing to let his own son die and really to understand the essence of the cross, Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. God became a man, a human being, in order to die a violent death, in order to save your soul and my soul. It's the most amazing and comprehensible expression of heroic love. And the point is, if he did that, what else needs to be proved? He's on your side. He'll do everything that you need. He's done the ultimate. He'll do everything else that you need. Let's go back to the diagram. In a, in a courtroom, there's what's called an evidence table. Remember O.J. Simpson, the glove, you know, it's at on the evidence table, all right? And this verse is pointing to the only evidence that matters as it relates to our self-worth. And what evidence is that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When it comes to evidence to determine if you matter or not, God gave his own son for you. And folks, that message, according to scripture, settles the matter. He loves you. And that's the truth that this cross portrays. God loves you. Let's put that up there. God loves you. Folks, uh, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love was seen in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so, at the moment when you're feeling uh, under attack, when you're feeling like a loser, all you have to remember is the cross of Christ. How much do you matter? Jesus came to rescue you. He came to give everything, his blood, his life. Why? You say for humanity, yes, but for you as an individual, he had you in mind. When he heroically came to give all, he loves you, proven, by the evidence of the cross. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 33 It said this: "Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? Who dares accuse us? Us, whom God has chosen for His own? No one, for God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. God has given us right standing with himself. A gift, he gave us right standing. Right standing is righteousness. That's the theological term there. As a gift, we Christians have been declared righteous. Isn't that incredible? Who dares accuse? There's no accusation that stands. You know, uh, when you go to court, let's go to court, this piece of paper here you see on the judge's desk, That's the charge against the defendant, all right? And the judge reads the charge, the accusation. And in this case, the passage is saying that the charge against us because of the cross of Christ is gone, thrown into the trash can. Do you see that? He says, you are given the status of righteous and pure. There once was a charge. We are sinners, But that sin has been paid for by the cross of Christ. And as a result, God has forgiven us. Let's put that up. God forgives you. That's the truth about our righteous standing. That sin that we're so humiliated about, though others may know it, God says, I'm the only one that matters. And in my eyes, you have been made holy and pure. The sin is gone. One more truth that I want to point to in this verse. It says, It says, Who accuses the one that God has chosen? Let's put the phrase, God wants you. The the election of God is such a beautiful, beautiful. The Bible says that when God sees people of faith in Christ, he says, I choose you to be my own. Let's go back to the elementary school playground and picking teams for kickball. Remember that dynamic? God looks at you, says, I want you on my team. The rest of the world may reject you, but who cares? God chose you. The rest of the world may say, you are disgusting. I see what you've done. Who cares? God says, you are righteous in my eyes. The sins have been forgiven by the cross of Christ. You've been forgiven by God. You are wanted by God. You know, I. Uh, well, let's go to verse 34. Verse 34 says, who then condemns us? Who, who is it that can speak words of condemnation against us? And the answer is no one, no one. Now you say, wait a minute, didn't you just say that Satan is the accuser of the brethren? Isn't he sending messages and throwing thoughts of condemnation our way? He is, let's go to the courtroom. Uh, in the courtroom, this group is trying to accuse, all right? You've got, the, you've got the plaintiff, the cop, and you've got the prosecuting attorney. They desire to condemn. But you know what God says in that verse? Nobody has anything to condemn. Put a big X through them. God says, Silence. God says, "I don't, you have nothing to say. You want to articulate truth of condemnation, but they have been forgiven, and therefore be quiet. Isn't that beautiful? When I was on trial, this cop was all set to really see me pay, you know, you dirty, no good youth pastor. And this, this prosecuting attorney was all set, you know. And as they began to speak, The judge says, "Uh, uh, uh, I think I understand what's going on here. He said, A youth pastor was playing a game at the mall in disguise and you arrested him. Is that true? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, All right, that's enough. And he looked uh, at the police officer. This is a glorious moment. Um, (laughs) uh, He looked at the police officer and he said, Officer, can I remind you of a rather basic principle in law enforcement? Get the bad guy, is what he said. <laughs> Did you understand that? He was really sarcastic with him, which I appreciated. Do you, do you understand that? He says, get the bad guy. This is a good guy, he pointed to me. Get the bad guy. He was just beside himself. And then he looked to me, and he said, reverend. No one called me reverend back then. It was glorious. He said, reverend. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your devotion to our youth and your commitment to leading them in the right path. And he apologized. He said, I am really sorry to waste your time and that you've had to gone through this unfortunate misunderstanding. (laughs) I want it so bad, you know, I'm I'm sitting here and he said, I wanted to look down and go, (laughs) I controlled myself, (coughs) controlled myself. But in that moment, my accuser, the one who wanted to to proclaim condemnation, was silenced by the judge. And folks, when Satan's winning the day in our mind, and when he's getting us down, and he's making us just feel disgusting about ourselves, in that moment, if we will turn to the Holy Spirit of God in us and say, help me out. Speak the truth. The Spirit of God will silence the enemy and cast away those disparaging thoughts. And if we turn to the word of God, the Lord will replace those messages of false condemnation with this truth that God loves you and that God is for you and that he forgives you and that he wants you. Well, let's continue. Verse 43, second part of it. Jesus Christ died for us. He was raised back to life for us. And still he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And now he is pleading for us. The NIV says interceding for us. The the concept is representing us in the same way a lawyer does. So let's go to the diagram one more time. And Jesus is our defense attorney. And the passage says that he's at the right hand of the Father. He moves over here. And he is whispering in the Father's ear words of defense. Jesus defends us. He defends you. This is not just theoretical. This is actual conversation going on in heaven right now. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, talking with the Father. And if you wonder what they're discussing, you should probably know they're talking about you. What's the nature of the conversation about me? It's all good. Jesus is defending you. Jesus is saying, Father, they're mine. Remember when I died on the cross and shed my blood? It was for them. And the Father, of course, knows that and celebrates that. And the two of them celebrate you. They brag on you. These are words of great celebration of you. Wouldn't it be fun to eavesdrop on that conversation? We can't right now, so imagine it because it's happening. And I think a little time, imagining Jesus, the Son, speaking with God, the Father, about us in celebration of our righteous standing through Christ, that's a glorious conversation to eavesdrop on. It's amazing to have one who is defending us, representing us. Before this court that I went to, I was freaking out, you know. I can't believe I'm going to trial. And my lawyer said to me, Jeff Griffin, relax. I go, I don't know what to say. He goes, you won't have to say a word. He said, I've got it, would you? Relax. You just sit back. I'll take care of this. And that's what Jesus says to us. Lord, I have uh, such a mess of a life. And, and Jesus says, listen, I am your redeemer. I am your representative before the Father. I've got this. Relax. I'm here for you. That's some truth to think about, huh? See what this passage is doing? This passage is recognizing that we live in a broken world where we go through all this junk and there are people against us and demons against us and there are accusations and condemnations coming our way. But the passage using a courtroom setting is saying, listen, those accusatory voices are in vain. There's no substance behind them. The truth of the matter is this. God loves you, and he will silence demonic accusation. God is for you. The judge, the only opinion that matters is on your side. God forgives you. Your sin has been thrown away. God wants you. He has chosen you to be his own. And Jesus, presently and always, is your defender. What a beautiful truth these are not just happy thoughts. These are thoughts that transform. We need these thoughts to replace the dark thoughts of condemnation for the survival of our soul. We need that truth. That was evidenced to me just a week ago. We had a great time together on Sunday morning, didn't we? Well, my Sunday night stunk. I had a bad Sunday night. Uh, we, we had a meeting here at church, and uh, some meetings are just great and go really well. Some meetings are really hard, and this was a hard meeting. I had a role in the meeting, and I made a hard meeting worse, in my own humble opinion. I, uh, I was so exhausted. I was dealing with what I call mental fatigue. You know, that's where you're just spent. And I gave up, I stood up to give some meaningful pastoral comments in this meeting. And I just started babbling. My recollection of it, I just babbled incoherently. (laughs) If you were there and you thought I made sense, praise God. That was the Lord interpreting what I was saying for you. And I sat down after my little part. I just thought, wow, that was terrible. You say, can it get worse? Oh, yeah. I came out into the parking lot and proceeded to get into an accident right in our parking lot. It was a minor bump of another car but it was significant enough to scratch a beautiful car of some very gracious people, thankfully. I am insisting on paying for the repairs, but can you believe it? I'm driving home going, this is unbelievable. Griffin, you amaze me. You can blow it from the stage. You can blow it in the parking lot. You can just, you can fail in impressive form. And as I drove home, those voices started swirling in my head. And my emotional state was crashing. And I just felt like a failure. I felt so bad for these people whose car I damaged. I felt so bad for not rising up in a leadership moment like I had wanted to. Don't look at me like that. Some of you are looking at me like, man, you really are a problem, yeah? You know? <laughs> Every one of us, if you're honest, you got to say you relate to me. Don't you have those dark moments where you just feel like dirt? Where your self-esteem is in the toilet? Where everything is just imploding? And in those moments, we need this truth. And when I got home, my wife says, how was the meeting? I'm terrible. How are you doing? Terrible. And my wife said to me, I'm going to pray for you. I'm like, well, do And I had to choose to turn to God in my despair. I was hearing messages of, Jeff, you're a loser. And I had to turn to messages of God's love and his forgiveness. And as I turned to God and reflected on those biblical truths, I didn't deny the obvious. Yeah, you blew it in the meeting, and sometimes you will. Yeah, you hit the guy's car, and sometimes you're going to make some bad mistakes. But Jeff, that doesn't change the fact that you're my son, that I have forgiven you of all your sin and made you righteous in my sight, that I adore you with an intensity that you have no idea, that I am proud of you and that God the Father and God the Son are, are talking about me and they're in me even on this moment I feel so down. And as I meditated on my identity in Christ, my emotional state did a U-turn. It was plummeting, but I went to bed Sunday night basking in the gracious affection of God. And folks, we gotta do that again and again and again. Chase away the accusation by turning to the biblical truth of what we have in Christ. Now, I'll say the obvious, and that is for those who are in Christ, and it may be that some of you are churchgoers and occasional prayer sayers and relatively good people, but you've never turned to Jesus and said, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be the forgiver of my sins, the leader of my life. I need you, Jesus, you're my only hope. You've never had that salvation moment of desperate faith in Christ. And so in our closing prayer, I'd like to provide you a chance to do just that. In this closing prayer, if you've never had your moment of clinging to Jesus and finding new life with him, all you have to do is pray with me. You don't have to pray out loud, just in your heart, and God is listening real intently. In your heart, cry out with me as I pray. Sound good? Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge (laughs) that we make mistakes. We fail morally, financially, relationally. Failure is part of our lives. And Jesus, we know you came to rescue those in failure, those sinking. And so in prayer, knowing that you're listening, we cry out to you right now. Jesus Christ, save our souls. Please, Lord, forgive us. Apply what you did on the cross to our lives so that we can be made righteous as a gift. And would you also remind us that you are not only Lord and leader, you're our Father, we're your child. In this moment, not because we deserve it, but because you're gracious, we ask for admission into your family. As your forgiven children. Thank you, Christ, for dying to save us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to move to a time.